Hey folks, thanks for tuning in to Taste Radio, the number one podcast for the food and beverage industry. I'm editor and producer Ray Latif, and you're listening to episode 203, which features an interview with Ben Van Leeuwen, the co-founder and CEO of Van Leeuwen Ice Cream. Just a reminder, if you like what you hear on Taste Radio, please share the podcast with friends and colleagues. And of course, we'd love it if you could review us on the Apple Podcasts app or your listening platform of choice. 12 years ago, Ben Van Leeuwen launched his premium ice cream brand in the midst of a recession. An economic downturn is perhaps not the ideal time to start a company, yet the circumstances helped establish one of the core elements of his business strategy, a thorough examination of every expense. That principle has been essential to running a lean and profitable company, Ben said, and key to its growth. Since then, Van Leeuwen Ice Cream has evolved into a sprawling brand with 22 ice cream shops in New York and California, and a wholesale pint business with more than 1,500 accounts across the U.S. In the following interview, I spoke with Ben about why he started an ice cream brand alongside his brother and future wife, how New York City's culture impacted its development, and why the company didn't raise money for its first 11 years. He also shared his perspective on why Van Leeuwen has bucked the shift toward healthy eating, promoting brand pillars through packaging, the synergistic relationship between its stores and wholesale business, and why he's open to selling the company down the road. Hey folks, it's Ray with Taste Radio. I'm here in New York City, and sitting with me right now is Ben Van Leeuwen, the co-founder and CEO of Van Leeuwen Ice Cream. Ben, how are you? Pretty good. Thanks for having me. You look very relaxed. Did you I just did, go on vacation? I did yoga this morning. Okay, so, that's And I haven't was. done yoga for a long time, so okay. I'm feeling extra I saw relaxed. you doing some stretching before we got yeah, out to the mic. power pose. Pa- what's yeah, that? The power pose. So, what's the power pose? Arms up, and it is a way of telling your brain that something really good has just happened. So it boosts testosterone, reduces cortisol. Just lifting your arms? Yeah, you have to do it for like 90 seconds, so I don't know if I, I got it. But yeah, if you lift both arms... Like a V... Wow. Okay. I'm going to start doing that. Yeah. So I, I think the idea is when we were hunter gatherers and something really good happened, we'd ah, that push our sense. arms up and down. Yeah. And now our brains think that if we do that for long enough, something really good has just happened. So if you're ever feeling like stressed out, you should do that. It's so weird because people, I, I talk to so many people who are obsessed with like biohacking mm-hmm. and this doesn't require biohacking. It just requires you stretching. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. It's like fake it till you make it. Like act happy and you will become happy. I, Same with smiling. I Whenever, think we've got a great podcast interview yeah. already. This is, right. this is good stuff. But no, I mean, working in the ice cream shops, I don't work in the ice cream shops as much as I used to. But when I used to work in the ice cream shops and the trucks a lot, if I was ever feeling lethargic or tired or hungover and had to go work within minutes you're feeling amazing because in customer service you have to be really nice and smile so you begin like acting really happy and energetic and then before you know it you're not acting happy and energetic you are happy and energetic you know it actually i I have a similar story when i'm recording content for the podcast by myself in the studio sometimes i'm exhausted first thing in the morning Mm -hmm. whatever it is i make myself smile and chuckle (laughs) because it leads to better sounding content yeah. Interesting stuff. So you're just coming from Brooklyn, from Greenpoint, where you founded the company with your brother and your ex-girlfriend? And my ex-wife. Your ex-wife. Or actually, where my wife and co-founder, but separated wife. Okay. And best friend. 
it sounds like building this company has been a breeze. <laughs> Has it? I mean, that just, it, it, it is, sounds like a sitcom yeah. actually. It, it has not been a breeze, but not for that reason. Okay. I think for the same reason that building any company is really hard. Well, how do you make it work? I mean, because I have a lot of brothers and a lot of my brothers actually work together on their own business and we butt heads as brothers do. And, you know, as spouses do, uh, you know, what's the best way to make it work between the three, three co-founders? So working with family, which is what it is, Pete's my brother, Laura's my, you know, technically wife, but ex, there's no filter. So with our COO and CFO, like there is a filter and you measure yourself um, and with anyone who works for us, but with family, there's less of a filter there. So you kind of can get into more arguments because of that lack of filter. But the upside to it is that there's complete trust in sort of complete alignment. And more importantly than anything else, like it's the love, you know, like we love each other so much and care about each other so much that no matter what, we'll always do what it takes to be there for one another and to be there for the business because we never want to let each other down. So Ben, you're the CEO of the company. Among the three co-founders, did you have a process of deciding who was going to handle that role? We actually didn't have a process. It happened organically. We unofficially are co-CEOs and all do whatever it takes to grow and optimize the business. You just sign the checks. We can all sign the checks, oh, okay. actually. <laughs> um, so unofficially, we are co-CEOs. I think we've officially made me the CEO because somebody needs to do it. And I'm most closely across the product development and production, which is the core part of the business. That sounds like the really fun part too. Um, it is the fun part, yeah. Making ice cream is is the best. Yeah. Making ice cream and serving ice cream are the two most fun parts of the business and the, the core of the business. Everything else is business and exciting, but not as in the moment fun. When did you realize you wanted to start making and selling ice cream? I was a senior in high school and I needed a summer job. I saw an ad in the paper that said, drive a good humor ice cream truck, make 500 bucks a week. I answered the ad. I ended up driving a beat up old 1970s ice cream truck for two summers in Connecticut where I grew up during college. And I made a decent amount of money, actually quite a lot of money for a kid. I saved, I think, $40,000 in a summer. How old working. were you? I was 19. Oh my gosh. And I didn't want to go back to college. I took the money, traveled all over the world, Southeast Asia, Europe. And when I was traveling, I was most excited by the food and most excited by the fact that really good food in a lot of other countries wasn't special. It was just the standard and the norm because I grew up in America where even in, you know, in New York City, we have a lot of great food, but most food in America isn't as sort of carefully made and made with as much care and a focus on ingredients and a focus on nourishment. So I was so excited visiting, you know, Italy and Thailand and going to these places where for very little money you could eat really well. Ended up going back to college, did decent there, not that well in college. I think I had less than a 3.0 GPA. And I really looked up to my sister who had worked at Goldman Sachs made a lot of money doing that, started her own company. And I thought, okay, you know, finance looks good. You can make a lot of money. Um, and at that age, the idea of doing exactly what I wanted, which I think contemporary culture is pushing 
18 to 22 year old kids to do exactly what they want and try to make a living off it. When I was that age, I just, anything that I could make a living off seemed attractive. I didn't know that I could do something that I would also really love. So I asked my sister if she could get me a job in finance. I think she said, Ben, I don't think I can. You don't have good grades and you never did an internship. I was walking around one day in New York City. I saw Mr. Softy Truck and it was an unseasonably warm day in April. And I thought, why is nobody doing really good ice cream off of a truck? I'd become really into food, learning about special ingredients. And in that moment, to me, it seemed like an awesome idea. Um, I called Peter, my brother. I called Laura, who was at that time my girlfriend. And I said, do you guys want to start an ice cream truck? They both agreed immediately. Really? <laughs> they did, yeah. Didn't take much convincing. No, and this was April of 2007. That was the birth of the idea. We launched the company in June of 2008, so a little over a year later. But the idea was, like, why did I want to do ice cream? I knew the trucks. It seemed to me like a super accessible model. And I was very excited by the idea of making great food accessible, both price-wise and just physically accessible. Like a truck, you don't even have to open a door to get to. You can walk right up to it. Mm -hmm. And the, the juxtaposition of a food truck, which traditionally isn't associated with high quality food, now it is more, um, and doing really good ingredients off of that seemed really cool to me. It seemed exciting. So we had the idea, made some ice cream at home, learned how to make ice cream, got better at it, and bought a post office truck from the 1980s, retrofitted it into an ice cream truck, and hit the road in summer of 2008. It's funny you mentioned food trucks because people forget that back in the day, food trucks were essentially selling inexpensive food like uh, like you see in every corner of Manhattan, gyros and yeah. chopped up meat and things like that. You mentioned that you launched in June of 2008. If I recall, that's when the recession was really coming into being, really coming into focus. People were starting to get really worried. Not the best time to open a business. How do you make it those first two years? Well, I mean, we didn't know any other climate because we hadn't run the business in any climate other than that. And so, you know, we were lucky. We did well. But I think part of that, too, is that launching an ice cream business during a recession works because it's an affordable luxury. I think then we were charging like three fifty for a cone. So that's something that especially if you're feeling really bad, you might even be more inclined to buy. Three fifty a cone. Yeah, that was early on. That was Time the price. Change, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it felt like there was some growing interest in sort of handcrafted artisanal products at the time, even ten years ago, twelve years ago. Did you see other brands popping up that you could take influence from? Were there other ice cream brands like yours? There actually weren't one of the reasons we wanted to do Van Leeuwen is because there was nothing else in America like it. So there was no one else making ice cream using the best ingredients and using a really great base formula. So meaning lots of cream, lots of organic egg yolks, no stabilizers. So some people were doing some of those things, you know, a few good ingredients here, sometimes a good recipe here, but no one was doing everything. So we were inspired more by sort of ingredient producers and farmers and chocolate makers than we were other ice cream makers. We did have some really good ice cream in Italy that was made with pistachios from Sicily and, you know, chocolate from Demori, a really good chocolate maker. And that inspired us a little bit. 
but it was it was the ingredients that inspired us because the experiences that like still moved me a lot and you know moved me even more than when I didn't have the stress of running a business on my shoulders were sort of tasting something that was incredible you know that was made with a ton of care and not necessarily something fancy but you know sourdough bread that was fermented with a ton of care and time and chocolate that was made with beans from farms that were carefully cultivated and responsibly managed and there was a lot of attention on the fermentation of the beans and the roasting um so to us it was really exciting learning about those processes that make great ingredients great and then tasting those ingredients and saying wow that really is something so early on one of the one of the biggest tests we did when we were doing the product development for Van Leeuwen was chocolate we love chocolate and there were a decent amount of choices for chocolates for us to use. We didn't want soy lecithin. We wanted it to be completely traceable. We ended up going with Michelle Cazelle chocolate, but they had like seven different single origin or single farm chocolates. And we tested, I think, 35 different batches of chocolate and tasted all of them. But before we tested them, we were talking to experts in ice cream production and the advice from them was you don't need to use really good chocolate in ice cream. It's a waste. Hmm. You're using cream and eggs and those are going to completely cover up the chocolate. So don't do it. So we did not heed their advice and we, well, we said, let's try it. We're just making samples at home and we tasted it and we were like, oh my gosh, this is the best chocolate ice cream we've ever had. So a lot of these norms and, and, in manufacturing that you would normally apply to a consumer packaged good, we sort of veered away from and said, no, let's, let's try using the best chocolate. Let's try bringing the butter fat up to 19% and the egg yolks up to 8% and see what happens. Cause these were things that, and still nobody in ice cream does these things. Um, nobody on the scale that we're doing it, restaurants do, but no manufacturers do. Did the fact that you were in New York city and selling to New Yorkers, did that help the business early on? Did that make it easier to grow early on? Because if you were, say, opening up a Van Leeuwen in, I don't know, Ohio, Cleveland, mm-hmm. and I always pick on Ohio, I shouldn't, yeah, but anyway. <laughs> That's always the go-to. It is. Yeah, it's always the go-to. But was New York a, a key factor in the fact that you were able to build a business in those early um, years? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for, for many reasons. One, you know, as you pointed out, just like the affluence and education level allows people to spend a little more on products that are better. But on the flip side, it's much more expensive to run a business in New York. So I think, I think we could have been successful in any, any city that had a decent economy, because if we were in Cleveland, Ohio, or, you know, Phoenix cities that aren't quite as economically developed as New York, we also would have been able to charge less because the operating costs would Mm -hmm. have been so much lower. And I think there's the other thing, like New York is awesome, but it's, it's so competitive, even if you're doing something that there isn't much specific competition in, just because there's so much to do here. Whereas if you're opening in a smaller city, like the new ice cream shop opening might be like one of the only things to do at night in the summer. Um, so yeah, New York is really challenging, but I mean, we, we love New York so much and are so happy that this is where we launched. Mm-hmm. Production in New York is a little hard because we're spending like 
20 times the price per square foot. Yeah. I mean, Greenpoint a few yeah. years ago was probably inexpensive real estate. And now yeah. it's probably very, very expensive real estate. Yeah. We're, we're making ice cream in one of the most expensive neighborhoods on earth. How many times has a real estate developer come up and been like, hey, we want to buy your factory? Um, well, we don't own it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, that makes it even yeah. more expensive. <laughs> I know. I wish we did. <laughs> Okay, well, all this talk about money. Let's let's talk yeah. even more about money. The first ten years, I read that the first ten years of your business, you didn't raise any money. Yeah, the first eleven years. So we started with sixty thousand dollars from friends and family, which was enough to buy the used post office truck on eBay for five thousand dollars, cut some holes for windows, paint it, put a freezer in it, a sink. Was the and government selling the post office truck, or was it already owned by somebody? Yeah, else? it had already been okay, transferred right. to someone else. And they were, they're the big box trucks. They mm -hmm. sort of look like FedEx trucks. And we did not have enough money to build our own production. So we co-packed, co-manufactured for the first two years. And we were, we were super lean the first couple of years. I mean, we, we remained super lean, but we ran the business out of our apartment. The hallway to the apartment building was filled with boxes of dry goods. Our kitchen was the hot fudge, caramel, and candied nut production that was in operation every morning before we went out on the trucks. So we, we worked really hard and it was awesome. You know, it wasn't, you know, it's very different than like raising 10 million bucks and starting a business with a awesome org structure and corporate team. I think that's easier in many ways. I mean, harder in the sense that you need a lot more money to do it. Um, but we learned a lot doing it this way. And after two years, we said, you know what, this co-manufacturing thing doesn't really work for us. It's hindering our innovation and innovation is important to any food business. And it's really like our core competency too. So with, you know, very little money, we just rode our bikes around Greenpoint where we lived and we saw an old Polish restaurant that was up for rent, had been vacant for like two years, covered in grease. We, we were very excited because it had plumbing and electrical that would work for the ice cream. So we'd save some money there. We moved into the space with one batch freezer, a 15 gallon pasteurizer and started making ice cream out of that space. And we actually were there for eight years making ice cream. So until like three years ago, we were making, I might, I might be a year off. We were there for eight years making ice cream. So until three years ago, we were making all of the ice cream out of 800 square feet supplying our retail stores in New York City, Los Angeles, Whole Foods on both coasts. It was really hard. 800 square feet? 800 square feet, including storage. Were you running 24-7? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because yeah. we had like two, I think, I think by the end we had two batch freezers there. Yeah, not a lot of capacity you can fit no, in 800 square feet. No, very little capacity. Um, and there was no co-packing. So it was really hard. And then we built a 5,000 square foot factory three years ago, which now we're operating out of, which is still very small. We're doing like almost a million gallons a year out of 5,000 square feet, which is really impressive. Mm -hmm. And also doing co-manufacturing. Oh, interesting. Yeah. That's a story for our Nosh vertical. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> did you guys take salaries? I mean, how did you pay yourselves early yeah, on? Absolutely. I mean, that was, it's all we were doing. So until we did the series A, we took nominal salaries. I think it Many years we were paying ourselves like thirty, thirty-five thousand bucks a year, um, but it was okay. We were having a lot of fun. 
And if you just combine all the funds, you have almost $100,000 a year. Exactly. There you go. And we lived together for the first few years, all of us too. There you go. So it was very hard. The Series A, what, what went into that decision? How did you assess your financial needs at the time? We decided to raise capital because we felt like we were in a place where we had learned enough about running a business and learned enough about sort of our business and how we can optimize it. And we finally felt comfortable taking money because the growth path and the path to creating a lot more value in the business was clearer than it ever had been to us. Additionally, running a business, starting with $60,000 and going 10 years on that is incredibly stressful. So to us, the dilution was kind of worth the peace of mind and a slightly less stressful existence. It sounds like you've been running pretty lean over the years. Was that just intentional or, and I asked this because I read about an investor when you announced the series, a, one of your investors said, I uh, described you guys as incredibly profitable. Um, and this is a well-known investor, at least in the food and beverage industry. And when he says something like that, I mean, that says something was lean about turning a profit or was lean just the way you knew how to run the business. To us running lean was just the default. You know, we were, under the impression then that to grow a business, you wanted to try to spend as little as possible and make as much as possible. I think that's the basic uh, economics right. of running a I business. Know. A yeah. lot of businesses aren't run like that no. anymore. <laughs> so we, you know, it was very old, it shouldn't be old fashioned, but it, maybe it, it, I think it's coming back into fashion. But um, yeah, that's just how we could survive by doing it that way. And, you know, we were very, very thoughtful about everything. Um, Oftentimes, I think oversimplifying things, but saying, okay, if we if we hire this person, like, will they pay for themselves? And someone, a hire that might take four years to pay for themselves, like, we couldn't afford to do that hire then. A piece of equipment that would take, you know, six years to pay for itself, we couldn't do then. So we were just really, by default, we ran the business in a super lean way. What's one way that entrepreneurs listening wouldn't necessarily think of that you guys did to help stay lean. Mm -hmm. When you look at our economics, one of the strongest aspects of them is how much we spend building our stores. So we spend oftentimes like half of what similar quick service retailers spend for the same amount of square feet. Um, and our stores look pretty good. We're very happy with the design and aesthetic and the materials. And early on when we built our first store, I remember getting bids from three different contractors and they ranged from $80,000 to $700,000. And that was a moment where like, wow, you could, if you wanted to, you know, spend yourself into bankruptcy very quickly. So how were we lean? And, you know, the advice I'd give to any entrepreneur is like really dig into things, dig into every single expense, figure out why some things cost more and if there's value in that, or if it's just a reality of a booming economy that there are businesses and folks that will sometimes charge you triple for the same thing and making sure you don't do that. And really with every expense too, asking like, is this serving our customer? Like that's the most important thing. If it's not serving the customer, then don't do it. And is it serving us too? You know, the folks running the business, the folks working in the business, because serving them is as important as serving the customer and 
to successfully serve the customer, we have to serve ourselves and our team. To be lean, you have to dig into everything, question everything, and and really push. You have new stores opening up, seems like, on a pretty regular basis. There's also a lot more competition than there had been when you first launched. There's a lot of artisanal, small batch ice cream producers and brands out there. This is all occurring, though, amid this shift in... I guess, health and wellness, people thinking more about what they're eating, what they're putting into their bodies, eliminating or reducing the amount of sugar they're consuming. How does it work for you guys? I mean, you know, how do you communicate what you are, what you're about and get people to buy more of your product Mm -hmm. wherever, where else they seem to be doing the opposite? Mm -hmm. Eating a ton of sugar is bad for you, but feeling good is really good for you. So what we're selling is sort of like happiness and feeling happy and being happy in the moment. But eating a lot of ice cream every single day probably isn't going to make you feel great. So our thing is like, because we know sugar isn't great for you, when you do it, let's make it as awesome as possible. Like, let's go all the way. So to us, the taglines keep coming to me and I don't say that. <laughs> So it's kind of a, you know, go all the way. If you're going to do dessert, do it right. You know, with the the low calorie ice creams that became really popular over the last five years, someone said to me, and I have nothing against them. I personally don't eat them. But someone said to me a few years ago, they were like, you know, do you like Halo Top? Like, is, is it BS or is it the real deal? And I was like, well, what do you like more? Like Haagen-Dazs or Halo Top? And they're like, haagen it's so much better. I was like, that's kind of your answer. Because to me, it's like, if you're going to do dessert, do it right. If you want to be healthy, like, there's a lot of healthy foods that are incredibly delicious. Like lentil curry, you know, avocado toast. Um, those are really good. And just by default, healthy foods that don't have a lot of sugar. So our thing is like, if you're going to do dessert, do it right. And that's also like a very... I see the low calorie, low sugar stuff as, as very American in the sense that like we sadly like don't have a deeply rooted, rich, nourishing food culture. And because of that, we've created so many foods with so much sugar. So now as a reaction, we're like, we can't do any sugar. We have to take sugar out of everything. Whereas I'd say like, definitely don't eat sugar in your bread. Don't eat refined sugar in your drinks, but still do dessert sometimes. Because if you tried to explain a sort of low calorie dessert that didn't taste as good to someone in Japan or France, you know, these countries with like incredibly rich and deeply rooted food cultures, I don't think they'd understand it. They'd say, wait, so you want me to eat dessert that's not very good? They'd be like, wait, what's the point? Why don't I just eat really good dessert, but eat it like twice a week? Mm -hmm. It's so interesting to me that you say this because that's the thing for me is like moderation is fine. Right. And with the low calorie ice creams, it was never about moderation. It was always, you can eat the whole pint. Right. Who's going to eat an entire pint of ice cream? I, I'm, I don't know. Maybe some people yeah. would, but I, I'm not going to do that. I think most right. people would do Or eat an it. entire pint of ice cream once a month. There you go. Fine. Just once a month over a period of time, whatever yeah. works, you know. But yeah, we'll <laughs> leave it at that. Um there's also been a lot of vegan ice creams popping up left and right. Plant-based uh, food is just one of the most impactful trends that we've seen in food in recent years. Uh, you guys make a vegan ice cream that is supposedly phenomenal. I haven't tasted it yet. I apologize. Some came into the office actually, and I, it, it was gone in 60 seconds. 
So hopefully I can find some later on. How do you come up with this recipe for an amazing tasting vegan ice cream? So the goal with the vegan ice cream was never to make good vegan ice cream. It was just to make great ice cream that happened to be vegan. And we started making the vegan five years into the business, so eight years ago. And we'd already been making regular ice cream for five years. So our standard was super high. And how we did it mechanically was we looked at the makeup of our classic ice cream, our dairy ice cream, and matched the vegan to that. So solids levels, fat levels, sugar levels. And then we tasted it and just tried to match the mouthfeel as much, match the... I mean, you're never going to get an exact flavor match because they're different ingredients. But texturally, we matched it or maybe even made it better because it has a lot of raw extra virgin coconut oil and cocoa butter, which are fats that are just, if not more, luscious than butter fat, which is the fat we get from cream and dairy and cow's milk. So the, that was how the process started. The challenge for us was we wanted to make a very luxurious, high-fat vegan ice cream. Because those fats are sort of so decadent and so rich, we were early on getting more of like a mousse taste, and the ice cream didn't taste cold enough to us. So the formulation was super challenging and took a lot of like trial and error. The ingredients are basic. It's cashews, coconuts, cocoa butter, cane sugar. And now we have an oat milk one that's oat milk, coconut, cocoa butter, and raw coconut oil. So it was matching the formulation to classic, lots of fat, lots of solids. And the solids are important because that's what gives ice cream the chewiness. So in dairy ice cream, you're getting the solids from eggs and you're getting them from non-fat milk solids, which are in milk, cream, and also condensed milk. In vegan, you're going to get the solids from cashews or oats. There's some solids in coconut, but that's a lot of fat. And many vegan ice creams that I try, particularly the more the brands that have been around for a while, will have a similar sounding base to us, you know, cashew, almond, coconut. But you taste them and they sort of dissipate. They sort of leave your palate very quickly. And it's because they're not, to me, they're not using like enough cashews, enough coconut fat, enough of the really good stuff because it's less expensive to do that. If you can add more water and stabilizers, it's going to be less. So how do we make vegan ice cream that we think is great? Just not compromising, you know, as cliche as that sounds, like basically ignoring the costs and saying, this is really expensive. We're going to start making this. In the future, we'll figure out how to make it for less. But this is the only way to make great vegan ice cream. We're going to do it that way and continue using the Oscanosi chocolate, the pistachios from Sicily, the strawberries from Oregon, the hazelnuts from Piedmont, and that kind of stuff. There seems to be a theme here, which is ultra high quality. It has to be the best of the best, but the best of the best costs money. It's expensive, expensive to make, and oftentimes it's expensive to buy. How much are your pints? How much are your pints sell for? It depends on the market, anywhere from five bucks to eight bucks. Do you find yourself having to convince people about the price or are they ready and willing to just hand over the money? Well, in, in New York, we're such a well-known brand that, you know, a lot of people know us. They've tried it. We have, a, there's a lot of, we have a lot of customers who love the product and buy it at a, you know, slightly higher price than some of the other brands. But um, in new markets, we do have to convince people, you know, when we go into a new market, people haven't heard of the brand. So we want them to taste the brand and we do that with promotions and discounts and targeted social media. One of the 
big changes that's happened in the Van Leeuwen business over the past, I want to say two years has been that your focus has gone from the storefronts, from the retail storefronts, much more to the wholesale production, wholesale ice cream. And correct me if I'm wrong on any of that, but why have you looked at wholesale as a big opportunity for the future of the brand? Mm. Um, the reason we're looking at wholesale that way is because there's so much empty space, not empty space in the sense that there aren't a lot of brands, but to us, there's, um, there's no one doing it even close to as good as we're doing it, both on the dairy ice cream or the vegan ice cream. And the most effective way for us to get the product to more people is through wholesale. I mean, I would, I would love to open 2000 Van Leeuwen shops, but we'd need hundreds of millions of dollars in, you know, 10 years. Whereas we can, you know, this year we're going into almost 2000 new wholesale doors and that happens in three months. It's still expensive to launch wholesale and to operate wholesale and support the brand on shelf. So what, I mean, what have you learned about this business, this, the wholesale CPG business that is a little bit more challenging than you thought? There's sort of three parts to the CPG business. If you look at it one way, one is selling in, which you could argue is the easiest part. So getting the supermarkets to take you getting on shelf. So that's doable. We're a well-known brand. The product is really good. You do need a lot of money up front to get into a lot of stores on slotting fees. Number two is sell through, making sure it sells. So that's super challenging. It's a really competitive landscape. People who don't know Van Leeuwen and see it on the shelves might not know how differentiated the product is. So we need to somehow communicate that to them. Part three, which historically has been what's made expanding and wholesale most challenging to us, is actually dealing with chargebacks from distributors. So the big distributors constantly hit us with chargebacks. Many of them we have to fight and many of them are erroneous. But the chargebacks are are huge. They could be 50% of your sales if you don't fight back on them. I was just uh, speaking with the founder and the CEO of Brodo, the broth uh, company based here in New York City. Um, they have a wholesale line as well. And one of the challenging things for them is selling their broth in the freezer aisle, which is where it has to be merchandised for the most part because you get the longer shelf life and so on and so forth. But not many people are immediately looking for broth in the freezer aisle. Whereas in, for ice cream, of course you go to the freezer aisle right. for that. So how have you evaluated the front of the package so that it is a really desirable looking and impactful mm -hmm. design well, yeah, I mean, packaging is so important, you know, at the zero moment of truth for the consumer when they're deciding what to buy. I like that the zero moment of truth. Yeah. yeah. I mean, packaging is, is all you have right then. We redesigned our packaging four years ago. We engaged Pentagram, a really awesome design firm. They have an office in New York. And we looked at the arena we were playing in, which was the freezer aisle ice cream. And we saw so so much communication. It was really loud. And we saw so much communication on quality, on sourcing and ingredients on the front of packaging that it also, it looked generic and conventional and it, you couldn't even trust it. So our objective was to say quality and communicate quality, but do that in a way where we said very little, didn't do it in a very confident way. So what we came up with was a 
was color block packaging with the logo and the flavor and nothing else. When you turn the package around, there's information on the specific ingredients, but we wanted to say very little because in the freezer aisle, there's just so much noise. We use very good ingredients and have a very clean label. But what we found was that by saying less, that was actually communicating that in a more powerful way. Minimalist in your ingredients, yeah. the minimalist in your packaging, sometimes clean represents clean, right? So with the rollout of the pints and the expansion in terms of availability of the pints, what role do the storefronts play? Are they still profit generators? Do, they, do you look at them as sort of, and I, I always use this word or this phrase, 3D billboards to support the wholesale line? All of the above. I mean, so firstly, we love retail. We love opening stores. We love that it's this immersive experience for our customers and a place where we can go and interact with the team and interact with customers. Secondly, it's a very effective innovation pipeline. So we push out right now four special flavors every two months. We're going to be increasing that to four special flavors every month soon. But the stores allow us to push those flavors in, in a way that doesn't have as much weight as pushing it into the CPG channel, where you have to create new packaging, roll it out, sell in. The cadence on new flavors for CPG is a lot slower and less frequent. So stores are incredible for innovation and highly profitable. I can imagine there's a focus group element of the stores as well. You hear feedback that you can... Uh, incorporate into future innovation. Absolutely. So when we push the new flavors into the stores, those are always the flavors that may or may not become our new CPG flavors. Because you, yeah, we never know what's going to do really well. Honeycomb, which is our best-selling flavor, went on our store menus as a special seven years ago, and it was so incredibly successful, it never came off. What's a flavor that never really got off the ground? Um, passion fruit layer cake. So it was a passion fruit custard. So milk, or actually it was just cream, passion fruit, organic egg yolks, organic cane sugar, chunks of house-made salted caramel layer cake mixed in. Um, super passion fruity. It was like a third passion fruit puree, two thirds the other stuff. To me, it's the best flavor we've ever made. And it just didn't move. Isn't that amazing? Sometimes. Yeah. You know, the thing that you love the most is yeah. your customer's least favorite. And it was a very expensive one to make, so it was a great value. Another one was um, buttermilk yogurt, lemon meringue tart, which was a buttermilk yogurt base, super high in fat, not a low-fat yogurt, a swirl of house-made Meyer lemon curd, house-made graham cracker crust with house-made graham crackers, using only the best locally milled heirloom flours, and a swirl of house-made torched Swiss-style meringue. Incredibly complex to make. So expensive, so hard. And I was like, this is going to be the flavor that, you know, really makes us world famous. Like, it's just so special. And like, again, it didn't sell. The people who loved it absolutely loved it. We're thinking about putting flavors back into the CPG line that we sort of accept won't do well, but that we love so much and that a lot of people love sort of as a, as a marketing strategy, but also because it's sort of true to the brand and true to what we, what we are in the sense that they're very innovative flavors, they're very special flavors. Well, the way you just communicated both of those flavors, the passion fruit and then the lemon meringue, were done with so much passion and so much specificity 
that I can imagine that if someone, a customer is talking about it with somebody else, they're like, oh my God, I have to try this product. And exactly. it's incredible. Cause I'm, I'm like, oh, please tell me you're making like a one-off batch of some of this yeah. stuff. Ben, it's been fantastic talking to you. Uh, I can see how much you love the brand, how much you love ice cream, the business of ice cream and the, the production of ice cream. How is it that you're not 600 pounds? <laughs> well, Cause um, you're, you're very lean and very in shape. Cause sometimes you would think the person who's the uh, the ice cream producer is a rotund yeah. sort of person, but you're definitely not that. I mean, I'm super conscious of like what I eat because I want to feel good and be healthy and have a healthy life. So I do eat a lot of ice cream, but I, I work out a lot to balance that out. And, and I don't eat like a crazy amount of ice cream. I mean, our ice cream is super rich, super high in fat really densely flavored so you don't have to eat as much because it's so satisfying i think with with any really you know delicious well-made food you don't need to sort of gorge and consume enough because it's so satisfying mm -hmm. well we were joking before we hopped in the mics that your office and your manufacturing facility are five blocks apart so constantly running between them. <laughs> there you yeah. go that, that'll do <laughs> that'll do something for you for sure what's next for the brand because you've already accomplished quite a bit you know, we've talked about the pints and the distribution expansion there, but what do you envision as, say, the next 10 years, the next 12 years of yeah. Van Leeuwen? So the goal is to continue expanding into wholesale. I mean, we want to be on every shelf in every supermarket in the country at a as accessible a price as possible and continue opening new brick and mortar stores and bring that experience to more people. And then also explore bringing the product international. Um, the quality is so high and particularly on the vegan, the product is so, so differentiated that we think it'll work really, really well in other markets that have even higher standards for quality than the US market. Is there an end game where you envision selling the brand at some point? Yeah, we'd consider it. I mean, we have a lot of work to do and there's a lot more we want to do before we are no longer involved. Well, I hope that's a long way from now because I feel like the passion would be missing. I mean, I'm just getting it so much from you about, again, the love for the brand, the love for what you do. And it's amazing to see. Ben, thank you again for coming out and visiting with me. Um, I need to go find some Van Leeuwen ice cream right now. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks, Ray. All right. Talk to you yeah. soon. That brings us to the end of episode 203. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks for our guest, Ben Van Leeuwen. You can catch both Taste Radio and Taste Radio Insider on tasteradio.com, the Apple Podcasts app, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. As always, for questions, comments, ideas for future podcasts, please send us an email to ask at tasteradio.com. On behalf of the entire Taste Radio team, Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.